Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Praise the Lord. I'm so glad to be here. I am so thrilled to introduce our guest. But before that, just indulge me for a moment. We are overjoyed, Jennifer and I, to announce to you that 4.53 a.m. this morning, our first grandchild was born. Yeah. His name is Roman Jude Evangelista, and you got to say it like you just ate a big plate of spaghetti. Roman Jude Evangelista. 7 pounds, 11 ounces, 21 inches, and the cutest little dimple in his chin that I have ever seen. And praise God that he showed me mercy, because remember, I am leaving for South Africa tomorrow, and I got in under the wire, so I am able to be here for the birth of my first grandchild. Praise the Lord for that. Well, I am so thankful to be, in, to be able to introduce to you our guest preacher this morning. Ed and Anna Moore are from uh, Pastor, Ed Pastor's North Shore Baptist Church in Queens, New York, and, and Anna, his wife, is from Georgia originally. Ed is from Pennsylvania originally, and then in the early 80s, he came down to the University of Georgia to play football and met Anna there at the University of Georgia, and they got into ministry. And for the past 30 years, they have been serving the Lord at North Shore Baptist Church in the major suburb of Queens in the middle of New York where 9 million people live. And I was blessed to be able to meet Ed four or five years ago. We are part of a pastoral network that meets together yearly for encouragement and fellowship. And and I got to know Ed at one of these fellowships, and he shared a message with a room full of pastors, really from all around the nation and several international pastors. And he preached a message on 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul is telling a young pastor, exhorting him in the ministry and encouraging him to fulfill his ministry. And I don't think I've ever told Ed this, but that was a pivotal time of of encouragement for me when I was just at a particularly low point where that word just put wind in my pastoral sales and gave me endurance for the task. Since that time, I've crossed paths with Ed and have been encouraged by his ministry. And although he may not necessarily be internationally or nationally famous to the average Christian, in our little circle of pastors, he is, he is a kind of sage, sort of a, of, a, of a fatherly figure and highly, highly respected. He is one of those people that I listen to on a regular basis, his preaching from his church, and he feeds my soul. And it is just such a joy to be able to introduce to you this brother who has had a wonderfully fruitful ministry, he and his wife pouring into the church. And from their church there in Queens, many, many churches have been revitalized and planted and many young ministers raised up for the glory of God and the renown of Christ. So join me in welcoming our dear friend, Pastor Ed Moore. Thank you you very much, Brad, and 
thank you for the graciousness with which you have received us here this week. Um, it was a delight to meet with the staff on Friday night and then to teach the men yesterday. Um, my wife Anna taught the ladies and she talked about how attentive you were to the word and then last night to meet with the elders and the deacons and now to be with you here today to bring you the word of God. I'm a, I'm a little bit nervous today. I am not accustomed to such a large crowd. This might be the largest crowd that I have ever preached to on a Sunday morning. And also, I am really not used to having Jason Aldean and Vince Gill lead uh, music. So, so that, was, that was a blessing. <clears throat> I'm going to be talking to you today sort of in a roundabout way on the subject of evangelism. But I'm not going to take a conventional approach. I'm not going to be talking about the fact that we are commanded to evangelize. I'm not going to talk about the beautiful logic of how shall they hear without a preacher. I'm not going to talk about beautiful feet. I'm not going to talk about apologetics, how that when we are asked for the reason of the hope within us, we are to be able to give an answer with meekness and fear. I'm not even going to be talking about lifestyle evangelism. I'm going to look at a bigger picture of evangelism, and I'd like to approach it from the viewpoint of restoration. Let me explain what I mean. <clears throat> I did indeed pay for this haircut, uh, and no, I'm not proud of it, but it's, it's what I've got. A few years ago, I was in the barber shop, and as my barber is working on me, you could get the picture, he's standing behind me, there's a chair, I'm sitting in that chair, and then there is a, <clears throat> there's a mirror, <clears throat> pardon me, in front of me, and one of his friends walked in and sat directly behind him. Now, I kid you not, as he was cutting my hair, didn't stop, he turned around and had a conversation with his friend. So I'm, I'm watching what's happening here, and, and I'm saying to myself, as he's cutting my hair, suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be. And, and I told him, I said, could you just leave something there? I want to just, just so I can move it around. And why? Because I'm, I'm not like Reuben. I'm not a quitter. I'm going to, I, I'm going to fight this thing to the bitter end. <clears throat> As he has finished cutting my hair, but he hasn't been watching what he's doing, I'm saying to myself, I need things to go back to the way that they used to be. I need restoration. Well, we're going to approach the subject of evangelism today from the direction of restoration. Now, why do we need restoration? Well, you know why. It's because through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and Thus, death spread to all men. Uh, we live in a sin-cursed world where things get old and they deteriorate and they break and things die. Job put it best when he said that man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. But I'm not just talking about the physical ailments that we have or the fact that our marriages fall apart or that our finances dwindle or that we become depressed, but I'm talking about restoration where we need it the most. And ironically, that's where we feel it the least, and that is in our relationship with God. Now, how is restoration to come about? We need it desperately. 
Entropy has an undefeated record. Fairy tale endings are reserved for fairy tales, and all of the king's horses and all of the king's men are very busy and ineffective. And so we need something to bring about restoration. Well, I would like to illustrate that today from a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 8. We're going to look at the first six verses. And so allow me please to pray, and then we will work our way through this text. Father in heaven, I am dependent upon you today. Please do not allow me to stand up here and just read words off of a page. But Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that I would accurately present your son this morning. Lord, I pray that people would be leaning forward and interested, Lord, in the way that you restore sinners, and Lord, how that they, as evangelists, have a part in that. And so, Lord, in Jesus' name, I pray that this message today would accomplish much, and that you would be glorified, and that your Son would be exalted, Lord, that we would leave this place, Lord, ready and eager and willing to be faithful evangelist. Uh, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll pick up the reading in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn or travel wherever you can. Why? For the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. Now who is this woman? Well, the man speaking is Elisha. He is, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the most prolific miracle worker in the Bible, and he is speaking to the woman whose son had been raised to life. She is known as the Shunammite woman. We are introduced to her in 2 Kings chapter 4. The story of the Shunammite woman is that uh, she was very benevolent, she was very generous, and she knew that the prophet Elisha would frequently pass through her region. He, she knew that he had nowhere to stay, and so she and her husband built a room on the top of her house so that he would have a little apartment. It had a little bed in it, and it was just a place for him to stay, and he was very grateful. And so Elisha went to the woman and he said, I'm very thankful that you've provided this space for us. Is there anything that I can do for you? The woman said, no, I have everything that I need. I dwell among my people. I don't need anything at all. However, Elisha's, Elisha's assistant, a man by the name of Gehazi, said, I think the woman does need something. Uh, she's getting a little bit older, and her husband is already an old man, and they don't have any children. They would really like to have a child. And so Elisha goes to the woman, and he says to her, next year at this time, you're going to have a child. Fade in, fade out. A year later, a little boy is born. The little boy grows up, and one day the little boy is out in the field working with his father, and he begins to complain of a headache. He then goes in the house, gets up on his mother's lap, and there in her arms, he dies. The woman picks the little boy up, and she carries him up the steps into Elisha's room and lays him on the bed. Now, Elisha is not there at the time. Elisha is 16 miles away in Mount Carmel. And so the woman travels to Mount Carmel, and she makes a request of Elisha, telling him what has happened. Her son has died. Elisha, who probably by this time is not really fleet of foot, says to his assistant, Gehazi, I want you to take my staff, and I want you to run as fast as you can back to Shunem. Don't greet anybody. Go into the room and lay the staff across the little boy. 
he does that. Elisha and the woman travel back to Shunem, and Elisha, in a very unusual prayer meeting, walks into the room and raises the little boy to life. That is the woman that is being referred to here. And what Elisha does for her is he comes to her and says, listen, you need to get out of town. And the reason that you need to get out of town is that there is going to be a famine. Now, why would there be a famine in the land of Israel? Well, it is one of the covenantal curses that God promised. God, when he established his covenant with his people, said, if you obey, it will rain, and it will rain, and things will grow, and you will be fine. However, if you disobey, if you break the covenant, then one of the things that's going to happen is it's going to stop raining, and there will be a famine. And so one of the covenantal curses is a famine, and Elisha says, this is going to be a big famine. It's going to be really big. You'll remember back in First Samuel, I'm sorry, First Kings chapter 17, Elijah said that there was going to be a famine that he prayed about, which lasted three and a half years. And if in three and a half years people were dying, what's going to happen if the famine lasts for seven years? And so Elisha says, you cannot stay. You've got to go. Go wherever you can. So it says in verse 2, the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God, she went with her household and sojourned or traveled in the land of the Philistines for seven years. It's better than nowhere. She goes to the land of the Philistines. Now, something very interesting starts to happen in verse three. At the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. What had happened when she was gone is the government took her property. Nothing ever changes. And, and, and now she's back, and, and she says she goes to the house, and someone else is living there. And so where do you go? You go to the king, and you say, hey, my, my, my land has been confiscated. My home has been confiscated. She goes to appeal to the king. When we get to verse 4, I can explain to you the English words in this text. I can tell you what they mean, but I cannot explain to you why this happens. It is one of the most bizarre verses in all of the Bible. I cannot give you the rationale behind it. I believe indeed that it did happen. But notice how unusual verse 4 is. Now, the king was talking with Gehazi. Let's just stop right there. Who was Gehazi? Well, Gehazi had been the assistant of Elisha, but he is now a defrocked clergyman because in chapter 5 of 2 Kings, he had tried to extort money from a Syrian general by the name of Naaman who had leprosy but was healed of that leprosy and when Gehazi tried to extort the money from him he was caught and the penalty for that is that he was to be a leper for the rest of his life. So this guy is no longer in the ministry. He is a leper. And, and the king wants to have a conversation with him. Now, we don't know the setting. We don't know if it's inside. We don't know if it's outside. I don't think that Gehazi's probably cuddled up in the king's lap, seeing as how he's a leper at this time. I'm sure that there is some distance, but the king wants to have a discussion with the former assistant of Elisha. Now, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, this is really bizarre. This is, this is really bizarre. Tell me all the great things that Elisha 
has done. Now, the reason that this is bizarre, first of all, is that this king is a wicked king. Uh, his name is Jehoram. He is the grandson of Ahab and Jezebel, and the apple has not rolled far from the tree. This king was a wicked king. He was a God-hating king. And, and even on a couple of occasions, we know that this king had tried to put Elisha to death. He, he had tried to take him out. Also, we know that this, this, is, this is really bizarre because this king himself had witnessed some of the miracles of Elisha. So now, why on this occasion this king wants to have a conversation with this guy that's no longer in the ministry and why the subject of that conversation is the great things that Elisha has done through the power of God, we will never know that. But that is an important part of the story. Verse 5. And while, W-H-I-L-E, while, that is the key word in the entire passage. If you miss that word, then you miss the entire meaning of the passage. And while he, Gehazi, was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, speaking of the little boy who was raised to life, of the, the, the little boy of the Shunammite woman. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, anytime you see the word behold in the scripture, it means paint a picture in your mind's eye. Behold, the woman whose son he had restored, that's our word for the day, restored, restoration, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her home and her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. So get the picture. Where you're painting the picture in your mind's eye, I don't know. But there is the king. He is talking to Gehazi. The king wants to know the great works of Elisha, and Gehazi says, well, king, I don't even like, know where to start. I mean, this guy has done so many miracles. Uh, I can remember King when he first started off his ministry. He was walking along with his friend Elijah. And behold, there was a chariot that came down. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. A chariot comes and picks up Elijah as the chariot is going up into the air. The mantle of Elijah falls and Elisha catches it. When he catches it, he uses it to cross over the Jordan River and it splits and he walks across on dry ground. When he gets to the other side, he's in Jericho. When he gets there, the water is bitter. He puts some salt in the water and it becomes sweet. From there, he travels over to Bethel. As he's traveling over to Bethel, there were some children or young people that were making fun of him because he was bald. And what did he do? Two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of them to death. King, I can't even tell you all of the things that has happened. In fact, you know the story, King, because you yourself were there when we went on a military expedition and we didn't have any water, and it wasn't raining, there wasn't a river, but water just appeared, which quenched our thirst, and we were able to defeat our enemies. King, the reason why I am a leper today is because there was a man by the name of Naaman who had been a leper, and he went and washed himself and became pure. There was another case where there was some stew. It was poison. He put flour into it, and it became edible. There was another case, I saw it myself, king, that they were down at the Jordan River, and there was a guy with a 
borrowed axe head, and the axe head fell into the Jordan River, and Elisha waves a stick over it, and it is raised to the top of the surface. King, I can't even begin to tell you all of the things that Elisha has done, but by far the strangest thing that I ever saw was once upon a time there was this little boy. And I'm telling you, King, he was dead. He wasn't sick. He wasn't injured. He wasn't wounded. He was dead. He was cold. He was blue. He was purple. He was dead. He was laying on a bed, and Elisha came in and laid on top of the boy, and the boy came. That's him. That's him right there, King. The boy that I am now talking about. Remember that word, W-H-I-L-E, while he was talking about the boy who had come to life? He says, King, that is the boy right there, and there is his mother. King's a little bit skeptical at first. What does he do in verse 6? And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So what did the king do? The king appointed an official for her, saying, restore, there's our word for the day, restore, restoration, restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. In other words, give that lady her house back, give her her land back, and give her all of the produce that would have grown during those seven years. That is complete restoration. What can we learn from this story about evangelism? I have three points. Number one, our glorious message of of salvation is always controlled by the design of providence. Our message is controlled by the design of providence. Uh, What is providence? Well, providence is the fact that God has absolute control over all things. Uh, God is orchestrating the movement of the largest planet and also the movement of the smallest molecule and everything in between. God is sovereign and he rules over all. Let me ask you, what are the mathematical chances that the exact moment when Gehazi, a defrocked clergyman, would be talking about the woman and her son, that at that exact moment, that the woman and her son would walk into the room. This is a pet peeve of mine. I I, I don't mean to be critical of anybody that does this. It's just a personal pet peeve. But it is somewhat bothersome to me when someone will talk about how there will be a coincidence or there will be a confluence of people or events which will come together in a providential way and they will refer to that as a God thing. To which I would say, can you tell me anything that is not a God thing? Everything that ever occurs is a God thing. God is in absolute control. Listen to how the abstract of principles from the Southern Seminary puts it in Article 4. God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, yet so not in in any wise to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures, end quote, and well said. 
or as it is put more succinctly in the Westminster Confession, he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. He has a lock on everything, meaning he limits, orders, controls, and knows everything. And if that is true, then there is no such thing as luck. For if luck exists, then the God of the Bible does not. So you will hear young people say, well, that was so random. Nothing is random. Everything is preordained. Everything is by design. Providence is a friend of restoration. Again, I ask you, what are the mathematical chances that after 2,550 days on the exact day, at the exact hour, at the exact moment, when Gehazi was telling the story of the Shunammite woman's son, that they would walk into the king's presence at that exact moment? Is it 100 to 1? No. Maybe 1,000 to 1. No, it's a billion to one. No, it, 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 is, it is insurmountable. So you're telling me there's a chance. There's no chance here. But I would argue that the chances are 100% if God is the one that is directing traffic. And as we think about our evangelistic endeavors, endeavors, we need to remember that in all cases, God is the one that is directing traffic. So you might be asking yourself at this time, what in the world does any of this have to do with evangelism? Here's what it has to do with evangelism. Every person that you ever come across during the course of your entire life, with absolutely no exceptions, is in your life at that exact time under the design of God's providence, and they are there for a purpose. That does not mean that all of them are elect. That does not mean that all of them will be saved. But it does mean that they are where you are as a direct result of God's providential guidance. And providence is not a friend, a, a, an enemy of evangelism. Providence is a friend of evangelism. We need to, A, rest in the fact that God is directing traffic, and B, be aware that the people that we are crossing paths with are there because God has put us there together. And so, how does this play itself out in day-to-day -day life. Let me tell you a story. Several years ago, I had a friend. Um, he had a, uh, a science background. He was an atheist. Uh, he was Jewish. He was a heroin addict, and uh, he was my friend. And for years, I would try to evangelize him. Once, I was able to get him to go to church. He, he had only been to one church service in entire, his entire life. He then became homeless uh, as a result of his heroin addiction, and while he was homeless, he was hit by a car, and he was injured very badly. And so he went into a hospital, this was in New Jersey, and while he was in that hospital, uh, his clothes that he wore into the hospital, uh, they were unwearable for the future. They had to be thrown away. And so his time in the hospital uh, being dried out from his heroin addiction and also from his uh, being cared for for his injuries being hit for a car, the entire time he's in the hospital, he's wearing nothing but a hospital gown. He is being cared for by a young lady who is not a Christian, but she is very compassionate. 
and she loves my friend, and she is concerned about him. And after several weeks of being in the hospital, it is time for him to leave and go to a rehab center. But it is discovered the man does not have any clothes. And so she goes to one of her parents' friends, who's roughly the same size as this man, and says, can you donate some clothes so that this guy will have something to wear out of the hospital? Fade in, fade out. He is transferred to a rehab center, which is 40 miles away. I hadn't heard from him in a couple of months. Now I understand why. He called me up, and he said, you're not going to believe what has happened to me. He tells me the story, and then he tells me where he is This little town in New Jersey that is about 40 miles away from where he was in the hospital. And I said to myself, well, I have some friends that live in that exact town. And I told him, I said, I'm going to arrange for you to get some visitors. And so I started a group text with 16 people. And I said, here's the story. There's an unsaved friend of mine who is in a rehab center. He's been through a lot. If any of you could please just go by and bring the gospel to him, love him, be his friend, be kind to him, I would greatly appreciate that. And immediately, one of the ladies responds on the group text and said, I don't know this man, but I know who he is. My daughter is a nurse in this particular hospital, and she has been taking care of him for several weeks. And then one of the other people in the group text chimes in, and this happens to be the guy who had donated his clothes for this man. He texts back and he said, I'm on my way to the rehab center right now. I don't know this man. I don't know what he looks like. I'm just going to go in and look for the guy who's wearing my clothes. (laughs) Long story short, over the next several weeks, my 16 friends visited this man, brought the gospel to this man, and this man became converted. He who had been a Jewish atheist, uh, heroin addict, homeless, and hit by a car, is now a believer in Jesus Christ. And as he later shared his testimony, he said, the thing that I could not get out of my mind is what were the mathematical probabilities that the nurse that took care of me would be a lady whose parents and friends would be the one who would come and bring me the message of salvation. Uh, Providence is a beautiful thing. And so I would just say to you, you are where you are because God has put you there. Please be aware that the people that he has placed in your path are people that need to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when you are with them, just know that God has put you there and use that providence as a means to share the gospel. Here's the second, here's the second point, and that is that our glorious message of salvation needs to be accompanied with an understanding of pain. Pain. What is the greatest pain that the Shunammite woman ever experienced? Well, it was the pain of losing a child. I I, I don't even want to think about this very long. I mean, her son died. Uh, what this woman felt, and can you imagine this, during the 16-mile walk 
to Mount Carmel and then the 16-mile walk back with a dead child. I, 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 I can't meditate too long on the pain that this woman went through. But please understand that without that pain then there would have been no risen sun. And if there wasn't a risen sun, that when this woman came in and interrupted the conversation between Gehazi and King Jehoram, uh, the king would have said, who are you? And she would have said, I lost my land. And he would have said, well, lady, things are tough all over. We just had a seven-year drought. There would have been nothing special about this woman. She wouldn't have gotten the attention of the king had there not been pain. And I'm sure that as she was experiencing the pain of a son that died, she wasn't saying to herself, this is ultimately going to lead to good. But I can say to you that pain is part of God's design and pain does lead to good because God is sovereign. Consider, please, how pain was used in the life of Joseph. So if Joseph is not the favorite son, then he is not hated by his brothers. And if he isn't hated by his brothers, then he isn't sold into slavery. And if he isn't sold into slavery, then he doesn't meet Potiphar. And if he doesn't meet Potiphar, then he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife. And if he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife, he doesn't get accused falsely of rape. And if he isn't accused falsely of rape, he doesn't go to jail. And if he doesn't go to jail, he doesn't meet the cupbearer. And if he doesn't meet the cupbearer, then he doesn't interpret the cupbearer's dream. And if he doesn't interpret the cupbearer's dream, then it is not known that he can interpret dreams and Egypt will squander all of the food during the good years. And if they do that then not only do the people of Egypt perish, but his own family perishes. And if his own family perishes, then his brother Judah perishes. And if his brother Judah perishes, then there is no King David. And if there is no King David, there is no King David's greater son. And if there is no King David's greater son, there's no Jesus Christ. If there's no Jesus Christ, I'm going to hell and so are you. Pain was used in order to bring about our salvation. But if you compartmentalize and put blinders on any aspect of Joseph's life, for example, in jail, forgotten about by the cupbearer, two years there, saying to himself, what am I doing here? I haven't done anything wrong. Ah, it makes no sense whatsoever. And I would say to you today, I don't know what pain you are going through. And I am not unsympathetic toward your pain. And Jesus is not unsympathetic toward your pain, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Your pain is real, and, and I do sympathize with you, and Christ does sympathize with you, and your brothers and sisters in Christ should sympathize with you. But, 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 but that's not the big picture. The big picture is when we get in our gospel helicopter and we go off the surface, and we look at the panorama of everything that God is doing, it is then that we can say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, as it is this day to bring about many people and to save many people alive. Or we know that God causes all things to work together for the good, even pain for the good of those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. I mean, please consider that pain is not wasted in the restoration process, for even our own salvation is a story of pain, is it not? Never has anyone known pain more than the perfect Son of God 
who for six hours was nailed to a cross, and Isaiah, foreseeing what the Lord would go through, said that his visage was marred more than any man. In other words, he didn't even look like a human being when they got done pulverizing him. And it wasn't just the pain and the agony that he bore from being nailed to a cross, but but the greater pain was when our sins were placed upon him. For he who knew no sin became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was the just for the unjust, and all of our sins were placed upon him. And as those sins are placed upon him, holy God looking down out of heaven, this is where the real intense pain enters in, God looking down upon Christ, who now has become a curse for us, rolls up his sleeve, and for six hours he hammers his son to death upon the cross, and our Lord cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? in me. Never has anyone known such pain, but without that pain, we would be experiencing that exact pain eternally in hell forever. But he took our place. In love, he took our place. Our restoration, it doesn't just include pain, but our restoration is a story of pain. It is defined by the the pain of the righteous one dying for the unrighteous. That's the object of truth. Subjectively, let me just say this. Evangelists who have gone through pain are going to be more sympathetic and more empathetic and more sensitive, more understanding and more compassionate. So, Pain is not wasted here. In fact, pain is a part of the restoration process. I move on now to my third point, and that is that our glorious message must be accompanied by a demonstration of divine power. Our glorious message must be accompanied with a demonstration of divine power. Specifically, the power of a risen son. I alluded to this earlier, but it really is worth repeating. And that is that the reason why the king was willing to restore her property was because her previously dead son was now alive and standing by her side. There is something unique and special about this woman. Let me explain it to you both objectively and then subjectively, and then I will be done. First of all, objectively. And I will argue from the lesser to the greater. If a wicked king by the name of Jehoram, hearing the testimony of a leprous, defrocked clergyman, was willing to grant total restoration to a woman that he did not know based upon a boy who had been dead but is now alive, but a boy who would eventually die permanently, How much more will a loving, eternal, intentional God grant ultimate restoration to his elect when he sees his perfect, eternal son standing by our side, which is a proof of our justification, a son who is alive and will be alive forevermore? In other words, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. You know what my restoration is? It is not my merit. The king doesn't look over at the woman and say, you know what, since you were so nice to the prophet, well, I'm going to restore your land. No, the king wanted the prophet dead. 
He didn't care about her works. The king was impressed by the fact that something unusual happened. And that is that someone who had been dead came back to life. As I stand before God, I certainly hope that he is not looking at me. For if he looks at me, I will perish eternally. I have nothing to offer him. All of my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I need him to be looking at someone else. The one who is standing beside me. The reason the woman gets an audience with the king and complete restoration is because a risen son is standing beside her. And the reason why we have a standing before God is that Jesus, our advocate, ever lives to make intercession for us and is standing beside us. That is our entrance into heaven. That is the objective truth. Now, now let me speak subjectively and, and, and I'll be finished. This thing of evangelism is just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, if you think about it, you have people who are dead, okay? They are dull. They are disinterested. They have been bound by the devil to do his will. And you start to take a message to people who are madly in love with sin and, and, and in chains and dead. You take the message to them that they need to repent and that they need to place their trust in a man that lived 2,000 years ago and died on a cross and then was raised. They need to commit their life completely to this. It is foolishness. How does it happen that someone who doesn't like Christ, who doesn't love Christians, who, who really thinks that we are weird, and in reality we are, but they think that we're weird, they do not want to be around us or do the things that we do, and we bring a message to them, and all of a sudden they understand it, they believe it, they become convicted, and they long for and love Jesus Christ, and with all of their heart, they are, they are granted faith and repentance, and they come to know that Christ, it is through a powerful resurrection. And so that's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is what? It is the boom, it's the power of God unto salvation. And so I would say to you, you're going to leave this place today, and, and you're going to go out into Columbus, Georgia, where there are countless unsaved people. Please know that as you go, every one of those people, no matter how insignificant they may seem to you, they are all precious in God's sight, and all of them are going to spend eternity somewhere. And you're just going to be making your way through life, and they are going to cross paths with you. That ain't no mistake. That is by design. That is by providence. And you have a message for them, which is the gospel. And the gospel is of first importance. And so you tell them about a Savior who died for sinners and a Savior that will restore sinners. And know that as you do, if the power of God through the person and work of the Holy Spirit convinces them that there is a risen Son, then what there will be is there will be faith, there will be repentance, and there will be restoration. Let me just say this before I leave. I have been talking to people today about how they should go out and tell other people 
about Jesus and how he saves sinners. But I am not so naive as to believe that every person that I'm speaking to today is indeed saved. And so I just want to say to you, I have a powerful message for you. And that is that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you yourself can receive eternal restoration today if you will call upon Christ for salvation. Thank you for being so attentive to the word today. Now please take this message to Columbus, Georgia, and may God be glorified as a result. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you, uh, Lord, that your people today really seem to and appear to love your word and be interested in this subject. Lord, now may this please be translated into doing, for, for we are self-deceived if we are just hearers and not doers of the word. And so in Jesus' name, Lord, would you please uh, cause these people now with confidence to go out and live in light of your providence and take this glorious message of restoration to those that are perishing. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.